In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. And I have perceived among the youths a young man without sense passing along the street near a corner, taking the road to a house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And lo, a woman meets him, dressed as a harlot, wily of heart. She seizes him and kisses him, and with impudent face she says to him, I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have decked my couch with coverings, colored spreads of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its entrails, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, my sons, listen to me. Let your heart never turn to her ways, for her house is the highway to the grave, and her paths lead down to death. Thus far the words of the wise man in the book of Proverbs so many centuries ago. They're sobering words. They're disturbing words. They're words that suggest something that the culture that we live in doesn't really believe. They're words that suggest that it's possible to get what you want only to find that it's not worth having. The wise man suggests that it's possible to follow your desires and even to attain them, only to find that they can't satisfy you, that in fact they may be poison, they may lead to death. It's possible to choose your own path, to take it, and even to come to the end of it, only to find that when you have come to the end of it, you didn't really want to go where it led you. The possibility raised by the wise man, the possibility really there is that happiness isn't all about getting what you want. That if you want the wrong thing, you might even get there, but it won't be enough. If what the wise man says is true, then it becomes a question of extreme importance for us. How to find the pathway that leads to life and how to avoid the pathway that leads to death. 
If what the wise man says is true, we all have to pause and reflect and ask ourselves what path we're walking on and what we're living for and what we're trying to get. And if we did get it, would it lead to life or death? Jesus Christ, the Savior, echoes the words of the wise man in the gospel. According to Christ the Lord, there are two paths, a broad way that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to life. According to the Savior, happiness is not a matter of choosing your own path, whatever it might be, and then getting to the end of it. According to the Savior, happiness is a matter of choosing the right path, even though it be a difficult path, and following it to heaven, where true happiness is. And rooted in the words of the wise men and the Lord's admonition about the two ways, there goes far back into the history of the church a tradition of thinking about how to discern the true path from the false one, how to pick out the desires that can lead us to real happiness, and on the other hand, how to pick out the desires that can't lead there, the desires that are cheap counterfeits, that are false pleasures, the desires that if we follow them, will lead us to death. And so, though they're not listed in a group together in the Bible anywhere, the seven deadly sins form an important part of our spiritual tradition. They're the product, I suppose, of Christian wisdom and prudence meditating on the paths that lead to life and those that lead to death, that have come up with the description of these seven ways in which the desire of our heart can be snared like the young man in Proverbs had his heart snared and led away from the true path, though it seems pleasant at first, to a path that leads to death. Those seven deadly sins are probably familiar to us. They're gluttony and lust and greed and wrath and sloth or laziness and envy or jealousy and finally vanity or pride. The list of those sins is traditional. It stretches back into the writings of St. Isidore of Seville and St. Gregory the Great. It was probably best of all synthesized and organized by St. Thomas Aquinas, who showed how those seven deadly sins all have their common root in pride and how they have their result in all the many-form, multi-form versions of sinfulness that we encounter in our lives. During this series, which Father Will and I will preach, we want to explore those seven deadly sins, what each one is, the path that it follows, why that path can seem so attractive in the beginning, just like the path that the young man is walking on in Proverbs, but why, just like that path, it doesn't lead to life, it leads to death. The seven deadly sins were combined together in that list, not necessarily because they're the worst of all sins. Sometimes they come in forms that are relatively venial and minor. But the seven deadly sins are the sins that cause other sins. They're the sins that beckon us down the path. The seven deadly sins are at the root of our sinful motivation and all our sinful desires, if we want to know why people do the bad things that they do, well, the answer is basically the same seven things since the beginning of the world. 
is because of gluttony and lust and greed and laziness and envy and wrath and pride. And by exploring those seven deadly sins, those seven false paths, by understanding how they start and where they end, we equip ourselves to avoid the false path and walk the true one, which is, of course, the thing that's really at the heart of this holy season of Lent. So by way of introduction, I want to meditate for just a moment on this false path, the path of sin with its seven branches, and see something about where it starts and where it leads, and in general, why it's so attractive. And then in evenings to come, as we go through Lent, we'll take up each of these sins one by one and try to understand a little better why it can be so attractive and why it leads to destruction, and something about the remedies or the tools that the Lord can teach us if we want to be free. According to the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, all these sins have a common root, and that root is pride. Pride, of course, in our tradition is the worst of all sins, the arch sin, the sin that's most directly opposed to God. The tradition has seen pride as the sin of the devil in the beginning and is closely bound up with the sin of our first parents in the garden. It's the sin, fundamentally, of refusing to subordinate ourselves to God. It's the sin of exalting ourselves and reaching out for what doesn't belong to us, as the devil did in the beginning. Created by God as a great angel, filled with luminous grace and light, he rejected that because he wouldn't subordinate himself to God. He refused to let his happiness be found in God. He refused to let his happiness to be an image which points to something more. He wanted his happiness to be something centered in himself. And so he cut himself off from the source of life. Famously, his cry is said to be, non serviam, I will not serve. And that's the first step on the path that leads to sin. What the devil and the fallen angels did in the very beginning is recapitulated in the sin of Adam. God had given him everything as a gift, and all the trees of the garden, including the tree of life. But the sin of our first parents was to exalt themselves in an insane attempt to take what wasn't theirs, to become like God. They rejected the eternal life which they could have received as a gift by reaching out and trying to steal it in self-assertion and an act of force. And we capitulate that too in every one of our sins. Every time we reach out to take something that doesn't belong to us. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle enumerates a triple concupiscence, three forms of disordered desire which spring from pride. The apostle calls them the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh has to do with <clears throat> the disordered desire of our animal nature, our desire for food and for sex, good things in themselves, but they become twisted in the particular way that sin can do. And the lust of the eyes has to do with our desire for the things of the material world, to pile up riches, to enjoy the fruits of the earth, 
a good thing in itself also, but sin twists it and turns it away from God and down the path that leads to death. And the pride of life encompasses the spiritual sins, that reaching out to grasp goods of our soul that don't belong to us. And wrath reaches out for a kind of false victory in taking revenge over others. And envy reaches out for a false excellence in trying to run down our neighbor until we sorrow when we see anything good in anyone else. And sloth seeks a false rest, not in the accomplishment of the goal, but in abandoning the struggle before it begins. And vanity seeks for praise, not from the mouth of God, our just judge and merciful redeemer, but from the mouths of human beings who bestow it without wisdom and who give a praise that can't last. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life evolves then into those seven deadly sins, gluttony and lust and greed and wrath and envy and laziness and pride. Each one of them takes a natural desire for something good and twists it so that it leads not to life anymore, but to death. But why do we walk that path? Why are those seven deadly sins so attractive to us? Why are they able to lure us away from our loving Father on the path that leads away from him? It's also the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas that every one of the seven deadly sins imitates true happiness in some way. It's a kind of counterfeit happiness, a false happiness. But that's why the sin is attractive to us. That's why it calls to us. That's why sometimes we follow. And so we think that true happiness involves abundance. We think that if a man is really happy, he doesn't have to measure out his good. There's nothing he has to conserve. He can enjoy himself with complete relaxation in plenty and abundance. And gluttony latches onto that, and it twists it, until we're looking not for a spiritual abundance, but simply for earthly food. And sometimes, for the sake of earthly food, we're willing to ruin our health or friendships or many other kinds of good. And we think that if someone is happy, he would share that happiness with others. There would be a certain kind of intimacy and communion and friendship. And indeed, the scriptures tell us that heaven is a kind of wedding feast. But lust twists that desire until it becomes not a true seeking for an intimate union, not the wedding feast of heaven, but something selfish and grasping. No true union at all. And we think that true happiness would be stable. It would be enduring. We think that the man who's really happy isn't worried about losing his happiness, isn't, running about, isn't worried about the source of his happiness running out. And that's true. The greed twists it. And we think that if we can just get a big enough pile together, if we could just hoard up enough silver and gold, then we might finally be safe from all the world's vicissitudes and every earthly chance and every earthly care. But worldly riches offer no true security. And they're momentary. And they're passing away. And the true riches are in heaven, where thieves don't break in and steal, where moths and rust 
do not destroy. And we think that the man who's happy has won a victory, and he has, but wrath twists that until we look for a false victory in false self-assertion and in the seeking of revenge in bitterness and rage. We think that the man who's really happy has attained something excellent, and he has, but envy twists that until we think that in order to be excellent, we have to run down others, and that the success of our brothers and sisters is somehow a challenge and a rival to our own happiness. We think that the truly happy man is at rest in his accomplishments, and he is. But sloth twists that, and we look not for the true rest that comes from, have accomplishing, that comes from having accomplished our goal, and we seek instead the false rest that gives up before the work is done. We think that the truly happy man would be praised, and he will be praised by God. The vanity twists that and looks for our praise here below from the mouths of human beings. And for the love of food or sex or money or revenge or our own excellence or rest or praise, we become willing to do all kinds of different things which take us away from the Lord our God. If we're going to break the spell, if we're going to cut through the illusion, if we're going to fix our hearts on the pathway that leads to life and on our true happiness in heaven, then what we have to do is open up the eyes of our soul and look at that true happiness for a moment. I'll close by asking you to do that. Stir up your faith. Look up into heaven where Christ is reigning with the saints and angels. Look at that holy city. There is up in heaven an infinite abundance, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a banquet beyond anything that we can imagine, and the saints in heaven are fully satisfied. And here below, the gluttons are looking for a false satisfaction in earthly food or at the bottom of a bottle. And up in heaven, there's a wedding feast, and the saints are caught in the embrace of eternal love. And the God who made them and who loved them and who has been with them since the beginning, he fills them and makes them happy. And down below, the lustful are looking for a false communion and something that can't possibly satisfy. And up in heaven, the saints are free from danger. They're stable and secure. The Lord is their rock and their fortress and their strength. And he is for them a richness that is richer than all the things of this world, more precious than silver, more costly than gold. And down below, the greedy seek a false security and piling up the things of this world. And up in heaven, the martyrs are victorious. Their persecutors and all their kingdoms of an empires having crumbled into dust. And they rejoice in their victory and they praise the eternal justice which has rewarded them. And down below, the wrathful look for a false victory. And they seek it in self-assertion and revenge. And up in heaven, no saint is a rival to any other, but each rejoices in the good of each. And down below, the envious think they can only find their happiness in running others down. Up in heaven, the saints are at rest from their labors, for they've already attained the goal. Down below, the slothful seek the false rest, which gives up before the work is done. In heaven, God says to each of the saints, well done, my good and faithful servant. And hearing him praise them, their soul thrills because they know that they have pleased the one whom it was their duty to please. They know that they have pleased the one whom they were created to please. 
but down below the vein, seek the praise of men, which isn't worth anything. And up in heaven, Christ is calling, calling you on the path that leads to life. And down below, sin is calling too. She dangles in front of your face a thousand glittering temptations, and she screams to get your attention and to show you all the false paths. But my sons, listen to me. Let your heart never turn to her ways, for her house is the highway to the grave, and her paths lead down to death. St. Matthew relates in his gospel the story of another young man. He says that a rich young man, a rich young ruler, approaches Jesus and says, Good teacher, what good must I do to attain eternal life? The Lord responds to him, Why do you ask me about the good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He asked him, which ones? And Jesus replied, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man answering says to the Lord, all of these I have observed, what do I still lack? And Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Brothers and sisters, we climb the mountain to perfection. In the great work of St. John of the Cross, he talks about how we're to climb this mountain of perfection, a mountain which is only attainable, whose top is only attainable through grace, of course, through the reception of God's grace into our life, through the free gift of grace, who makes us capable of ascending this mountain of perfection. Yet, that grace which God gives us does not destroy the nature which he also graciously gave us. We do not all climb the same slope to perfection. The multitude of saints, and if it was daylight, you could see it around you, shows us that we're not simply to become cookie cutters in our way to heaven. If you think about a mountain, brothers and sisters, there's many different ways to ascend a mountain. You can come from the north, the south, the west, the east. There's very steep slopes and very shallow approaches. There's gullies and rivers in some approaches, and there's sheer cliffs on others. 
and the lives of saints so varied as St. Teresa of Lisieux, St. Louis, St. Cunegonde, St. Henry, Pierre Giorgio Frassati, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Peter, St. Paul. Show us that God in his wisdom has chosen a particular approach for each one of us, a particular way that we will attain perfection that he calls us to and no one else. We're made differently, and this is a good thing. One way of thinking of this is called the temperaments. In the ancient antiquity, there were four types of people, right? The choleric, the sanguine, the phlegmatic, and the melancholic. You see this in our kind of uh, uh, fascination with personality tests today, right? We're trying to figure out what type of thing we are. Now, there's, of course, uh, a way in which that can go too far. But nevertheless, our temperament, our way of being in the world um, is important to know because it has something to do with the way that God calls us as individuals to approach him. You see, for the man in that gospel passage that I related in that story, there was something that he had to give up, that not everyone had to give up. There was some hook of sin that made its way into his life and could be the ruin of his life. Brothers and sisters, grace builds on nature. It does not destroy it. And what Father Doug has related with regard to the vices, its opposite, is the growth in virtue. And in order to grow in virtue, one thing that we have to look at very squarely is what are the areas in my life where God is calling me to conversion. All the graces we receive are given through prayer and the sacraments and the generous outpouring of a loving God act upon the raw material of our nature and we should look very squarely at what things cause us to sin. For the rich young man, he was so attached to his uh, goods that he couldn't let go. He couldn't let go to follow after Jesus because in the end, that is the question, isn't it? These vices, these things... They hold us back from the perfection to which we're called. They're like carrying an unbearable load or trying to carry an unbearable load up the mountain. They can be overcome. One tradition in our, um, one idea in our tradition is that of the predominant fault. This is the fault which may or may not be uh, the most serious sin that we've ever done, but it's the sin, it's the habit of sin that tends to trip us up. It's kind of related maybe to our natural temperament. For example, if we're a bit more choleric, if we react to things quickly and stay uh, angry for a long time or stay uh, excited for a long time, we might be overly wrathful. If, on the other hand, we're a bit phlegmatic, we might be tempted to lust and sloth a little bit more. If 
we find ourselves a little bit more melancholic if we react slowly but with great intensity. Perhaps we hold grudges and are moved to wrath. And if we're sanguine, perhaps we just kind of are consumed with vanity. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, there's a way in which you're being called to conquer. That place where you're weak. Whatever that place is, that's the place to focus first and to say, Lord, help me, give me grace to know that predominant fault, to know the place where the evil one will attack so that I can fortify myself, so that I can have a plan, so that I can ask for grace and resist this temptation. So that when I ask, as the rich young man once asked, good teacher, what must I do to attain eternal life? And he responds, in whatever way he responds to me, I can say, you can say, I want to follow you, Lord, with all of my heart. You won't go away sad, brothers and sisters, if you've already decided that that's the goal. To follow the Lord with all of your heart. To face squarely those challenges in your life, whatever they are. Because Jesus Christ speaks to you as he spoke to that young man. That question is so good. What must I do? Not those around me, not my friends, my family. What must I do to attain eternal life? What do you hold on to, brothers and sisters? What must you let go of in order to follow him with all of your heart? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord our God, we come before you, and we thank you for this time of reflection. We thank you for the opportunity to grow in virtue. We entrust ourselves to you through the hands of your mother as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.